Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, this is Jesse Proust, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Closet I'm Jeremiah Bomek, the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World most haunted house. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book, The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com.
Rising Above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft. The Graveyard Shift Online Radio Talk Show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. Hello out there in Radio Land. Good evening. This is Emmy. You're listening to The Graveyard Shift, the greatest talk show that ever has, is, and ever will be. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. By the way, those three pieces of music that you just heard, one of them you probably recognize, maybe the other one. The first one was uh, called Desert Cruiser by the Truck Fighters. Do not ask me why they call themselves that. I've been asking them that for a million years. They've never told me. And the other one is called, well, that one I'm sure you've heard of, Dead Moon Night by Dead Moon. <laughs> one of my personal favorites. And speaking of personal favorites, the last one you heard be- just before, the welcome um, little interlude is Tans Lunsen. Oh, wait, I said it wrong. Tans Lun. Oh, my God, I suck. Tansulensent. Tansulensent. And this is not the fault of the people who write the music. This is my fault for not knowing how to pronounce it. Tan Sulensent. There we go. And that was written by um, Holden and Ricky Mosher. Holden D. Oh, boy. I'm going to mess up his name. I just know it. Hold on one second. I want to say his name correctly. Holden Handy Caprio and uh, Ricky Mosher. And they are from East Coast Raid. So if you really want to know what's up, you go and you look up East Coast Raid. I think they're on SoundCloud, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm sure they'll correct me if I'm wrong. But you'll be hearing music from them throughout the show tonight. And, um, I mean, you've heard them before. And, of course, what kind of a, of a host would I be if I didn't mention our official show composer and, music, and musician, Dan Edenfield of Throne of Anguish fame? Um, you'll, you'll hear music from him all, all the time. I, I play it throughout the show. Um, so anytime you hear instrumentals that sound like they're coming from some kind of horror movie, probably dance, <laughs> unless I say different. So tonight I have a very special, special guest for you guys. I did an interview with, um, author Jim Steinmeier, who is the LA Times bestselling author of Who Was Dracula? Bram Stoker's Trail of Blood. And this guy was absolutely fantastic to interview. Um, in this book, he kind of focuses on the actual character of Dracula, all the uh, the history behind it, and um, you know, like who he thinks Dracula might be, and or you know, might have been rather. You know, oh, well, he's he's immortal, so maybe might be might is kind of appropriate. And um, anyway, it's just an absolutely fascinating read. I was blown away several times in the interview. I'm sure you'll hear it. And I'll be playing that in a little while. Um, we get into, of course, Bram Stoker's history, his his life, um, his marriage. I did not know he was married. I found out he had a child. Did not know that either. Um, I also was very ashamed that I did not know that Bram Stoker was actually involved in theater. I should have known this. For those of you that do know me, you know that I have a degree in theater. I have a bachelor's degree in theater. 
and I consider myself an expert in theater history. In fact, I've been uh, the head of many panels in theater history. I taught theater history and theater arts uh, for many years in um, local high schools, and I, I was actually uh, the guest lecturer um, at a local university, or actually local college, really. But, you know, you know, tomato, tomato, whatever the point is. I should have known this, and I didn't. And um, it was really interesting when I was interviewing Jim, the connections that he made between uh, Mr. Stoker and um, this particular actor that you'll hear about called Henry Irving. And, you know, it's it's funny. It's funny how when you're doing something, when you're when you're immersed in a certain field, in a certain genre, a genre that you find connections to that same genre that you yourself are in and in this particular sense Jim found a connection between Bram Stoker between Henry Irving and between the his particular career field and you, you'll get to that you'll you, you'll you'll hear what I you know what I'm talking about during the interview so before we get into that I do have a few little interesting stories to tell you guys of course you know so um and I know you'll you'll really enjoy this well let me see. Where where can I begin here? You know, um, it's the new year, and uh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when um, when you hear stories like this, right? You're just going to have to tell them. So here we go. Apparently, this bandit performed a miracle escape, and they're calling him the Jesus Bandit. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe he walked on water to get away from them. I have no idea. Oh, I get it. It's It's in Hawaii. Well, of course they called him the Jesus Bandit. Hawaii's surrounded by water. He probably turned the ocean to wine or something. Apparently, the Hawaiian cops are on the hunt, and he's known as the Jesus Bandit. The kawaii, and no, all you anime fans out there, that does not mean cute. It's a Hawaiian word. Kawaii newspaper The Garden Island reported that Richard Isaac Liebman, or the Jesus Bandit, is wanted by police after missing a hearing at Lihui District Court on December 4th. Now, he oh the reason he was described as the, the Jesus man is because of his long beard and robe, um, and he's allegedly burgled numerous homes on the island's north shore over the past four years. Another reason why he's been called the Jesus bandit because as we all know, Jesus loved to steal from people. I mean, come on, seriously, just because he had a robe and long beard, they're going to call the guy the Jesus bandit? I mean, that could have, I could have picked a million. How about the Charlie Manson bandit? I'm sure Charlie Manson wore, wore a ro- what Stephen. How do you know that? Okay, you really want me to say, okay, fine, Stephen had sex with Charlie Manson. Wow, Stephen, that's a really interesting little tidbit of information. Okay, Stephen didn't really have sex with Charlie Manson. He just wished he did. Okay, fine, fine. He didn't really have any kind of sexual relations with Charlie Manson at all, or with any serial killer. Okay, God. So apparently several people say they saw him, Liebman, near a place called, I kid you not, this is the name of this place, Secret Beach. If it's a secret, then (laughs) people already know about it. They should just call it, like, Known Beach. On Kauai's North Shore on Saturday, January 10th, but when police arrived, he scurried up a cliff and escaped. Okay, excuse me. If this guy really had superpowers, why wouldn't he just levitate up the cliff? (laughs) I mean, seriously. So, I don't know. They're still looking for the guy. And apparently he keeps eluding them. I don't think they should call him the Jesus Bandit. I personally think they should call him 
I don't know. How about just regular guy that does crime? I don't know. Moving on to strange creatures. Looks like this guy. One was spotted in Ohio. Yeah, I'm not kidding. This is, I'm reading it. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't really necessarily a creature. It was more like, apparently, two legs. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh, my God, you can't make this stuff up. Really, really long leg, by the way. Joined somewhere above, making a little pustule of a head, but apparently this thing was seen by a guy in Ohio on December 12th. Now, was it a mutant, a great alien, a mutant, great alien? I'll leave that up to you. But watch this, guys. Listen to what I'm about to say. The 60-year-old man who allegedly saw this creature was contacted by MUFON, which is the Mutual UFO Network. And they say, hey, it's going to be interesting to find out if there's any other sightings of this particular thing in this local area. Now, the Highland County Press published an account of the man's bizarre encounter, mentioning that it was while driving along Carmel Road in Ohio that he spotted this gray creature. According to his account, the creature had long muscular legs, no hands, no face, and knees fitted backwards. And, according to himself, he's a former skeptic. Okay, I already know what this was. I can tell you right now what it was. It's in Ohio, right? The guy was driving. It was nighttime. Okay, I know exactly what it was. Here's what happened. You ready for this? Okay, here's what happened. A deer was running in the forest. No, no, just work with Stephen. Shut up. I'm trying to tell the story. My God, go back to go back to, to jerking off Charlie Manson pictures, okay? The guy was the deer. Stephen messed me up, Stephen. The deer was running in the forest, right? And there was a hunter in the forest. And the hunter got spooked because the deer came up to him really fast, right? So then they bumped into each other. Boom. And then a weird, at the same time that happened, right? At the same time that happened, a flying saucer came out of nowhere and did some kind of woo ray and zapped them and then made them into this grotesque, mutated, deformed creature. And then the creature was like, oh my God, what am I? And then it ran, oh, you know, just ran. And then, you know, oh God, there's a road. And it runs into the road and OMG, there's a car. And there you go. That's what it was. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, this is awesome. Oh, God. Okay, that's <laughs> I can't go on. Oh, God, I love my job. I'm not kidding. This is really – guys, I'm not making this stuff up. I could, I could never make up anything this ridiculous. Well, I mean, I probably could if I tried. I mean, who who couldn't? Two legs. Connected into a body and then no head. What the hell is that? I was probably drinking some. Well, he's 60 years old. I, I bet you he probably spiked his insurer or something. I mean, or maybe somebody else. Maybe his wife spiked it. I don't know. You know, I was going to tell you guys, now that we're in our fifth season, which, by the way, by the way, if you have been looking at our Facebook and Twitter feed, we are at 40,000 listeners as of two weeks ago. Well, I just checked it tonight. And I hope everybody's sitting down because now we are at 45,000, 45,000 listeners, everybody. So I want to 
clap my hand. Yes, I see you, Dan. I see you in the chat room. Emilio, Daniel. There, how does that feel, huh? Talking to me like I'm some kind of echo. I'll echo you. See, look, I'm echoing. See, Oh, that wasn't an echo. That was a snap. God. Now I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway. <laughs> um, God, I screwed up. I don't even know what I'm talking about now. What was I talking about? I forgot. I don't know. Anyway, the point is we're at 45,000 listeners, and I just wanted to congratulate all of the fans out there that made that possible. We are also nominated for the best podcast of the year at the NMX Awards, which I believe is going to be in Las Vegas. I will post you. We were nominated last year. We didn't win. We got to the semifinals, though, and we're nominated again this year. And by the way, that's done by the fans. So some of you were awesome and went out there and nominated us. And I want to thank you so much for doing that. And I will provide a link to that when the nominations, they're not, they're, they're not open again yet. They open them a little bit for submissions and then they close them. They're going to open them again. So when that happens, I will provide a link. Make sure that you get on our Facebook and Twitter feed, which first of all, for those of you who do not know, who are still who are listening to us live for the first time, and don't know, you can listen to us at blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift, or you can go and listen to us on iTunes. All of our archived shows are there. Um, you can also see our archived shows on the Blog Talk Radio website. You can also listen to us um, on, um, I believe it's uh, Stitcher. Stitcher.com has our, our episodes on there. And uh, I'm right now I'm trying to get a deal ready. Uh, with some other podcast websites, um, I believe Spotify and SoundCloud wants to do uh, a deal with us. So we'll, we'll see what, how that happens. We'll see what happens with that. But uh, you, on our Twitter feed, you can join us at hashtag Emmy Shift Show, and you can see all the Twitterness that I is that even does that make sense, Stephen? Stephen, does that make sense that I Twitterness? Oh, God, you're such a sick bastard, Stephen. Anyway, no, trust me, you guys don't want to know. Trust me, it involves glue. You don't want to know. Anyway, so you can get on our Facebook group page. If you go to Facebook.com and you search for The Graveyard Shift, make sure it's the right group. There are two groups. Um, Join the one that has the most members, and that's the newest one. And then if you send us an invite request, of course, I'll add you. And we do have a few new members. Um, (laughs) Apparently, Twitterness is a new trend, I guess. I wish. That would be great. Anyway, um, you're going to be listening to the interview in a little while, guys. I'm gonna air it. Before I do, I'm going to go on a tiny, tiny little break. Before I get When I get back from the break, then I'm going to go ahead and air the interview. If I have time after that, I'll put a few more news stories out there. By the way, before I do that, I have planned. Do you guys remember that story I did a few episodes ago where um, I was talking about the Bigfoot that was apparently taking a bath at a local a park here in Tampa at Little Lettuce Lake Park. That is a local state park. I mean, I can actually drive there. In fact, I was near there um, recently. No, I did not see a Bigfoot. But I do have plans to go visit this state park. If I can get video, I will. If not, I'll try to get just audio. I'm not sure. It all depends on what they allow me to do. So just keep stay tuned on face on our Facebook group page. If not, stay tuned on our Twitter feed, Emmy Shift Show. Oh, excuse me. Emmy Shift Show, and um, we'll we'll you know we'll update you guys on that. So before I go any further, let me go ahead and go on break, and when I get back, um, we'll go ahead and start the interview. Okay, so just this is Emmy, and I'm punching it. Put 
your warp speed on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Demi. Why the hell does he always say that word, illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty, awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back. for the Pop Show Network. Here live from Hollywood Boulevard, minutes before the world is about to end. Fear, rage, panic, paranoia, and $20 baptisms offered on Sunset Boulevard are going to do nothing to change our fate. Yes, we're all going to die. We're all going to die in a
molten core of a dying star. That's hot. From the snow-capped mountaintops of Middle Earth. Orbiting above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft. The Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. You know, Stephen, I have known him for a very long time, for many years. Those of you that have been with us since the beginning, and when I say beginning, I really do mean, I mean, we've been on the air for, I mean, this is our fifth season. I want to say we've been in the air for probably, yeah, maybe about five, no, more than that. I I think I started this back in 03, maybe, like 2003. So that means we've been on the air probably about 12 years, off and on, obviously. And um, Stephen started with us back in, I want to say, 2005. And, um, in fact, I am going to play one of these days. Um, I'm going to play an, an old episode of the show where you will actually – you hear Stephen in the background. Like he, he was our, uh, our soundboard operator. And then he decided to go ahead and join us here at the, the station or the home studio, rather. And, you know, he he told me he did not want to be on the air ever again, that it scared him. Because, Shut up, Stephen. Yes, it did. And um, anyway, he kind of just helps me out with the technical stuff for the show. Uh, some of the some of you guys out there think he's not real, that, he's, that I make him up because he sounds kind of like me, whatever. I assure you, it's not me. There really is somebody here named Stephen. There's a real flesh and blood person that I just slapped. And that really is him. He just does not like to be on the air. But I guess he felt he had to because I was insulting him and whatever. And he did not want anyone to think. So I'm just going to – I'm gonna, I'm getting to it. Okay, I'm getting to it. Okay, so Stephen doesn't really like Charlie Manson, okay? He loves him. No, okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. God. <sighs> All right, so ladies and gentlemen, look, we're running short here. So I'm going to go ahead and start the interview. This is a great interview. You're going to love it. Um, the book is called Who Was Dracula? And uh, it's called Who Was Dracula? Bram Stoker's Trail of Blood. And it was written by Jim Steinmeier, Steinmeier, author of The Last Greatest Magician in the World. You can get it on Amazon.com. You can get it at any major bookstore. I highly, highly recommend it. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Get ready, get set, take out those wooden stakes, get your garlic around your neck. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my interview with Mr. John, Jim Steinmeier. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to tell you how excited I am to have with me on the air right now a very, very, very cool author, the illustrious Mr. Jim Steinmeier, who is the author of Who Was Dracula?, Bram Stoker's Trail of Blood. How you doing, Jim? Great. It's great to be here, Emmy. It's great to be on your show. Wonderful. We are very excited to see you, sir. Now, I have got to tell you, when I saw this book, and by the way, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you know, m most of the time when you hear about this subject matter, you usually hear about it during Halloween. Well, l let me tell you a tiny, tiny bit about this particular book. You see, it in this book, he folk and can I call you Jim? Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So Jim focuses on Bram Stoker's creation of Dracula. 
Okay, so it's kind of like, and he handles it like a detective story. Okay, so for example, he talks about how Tout Stoker, you know, who was an otherwise, you know, pretty undistinguished novelist, came upon the idea for this, his really his greatest work, and really it turns out we can actually thank a stage actor, and we'll talk about him in a moment, and you just go through all that, so. Before we get into that, let's let's hear a little bit more about the author. So, Jim, why don't you tell us a tiny bit? In fact, I can actually tell you guys a tiny bit about him, and then maybe he can elaborate on that. So, you know, yes. Jim is really one of today's most renowned historians of stage magic. He's the author of books including Charles Fort, The Glorious Deception, Hiding the Elephant, a Los Angeles Times bestseller. By the way, congratulations on that, sir. I know how hard that is. Thanks. You're welcome. He is a leading designer of Magic Illusion. He's done work for television, Broadway, and many of the best-known names in modern magic, such as Doug Henning, Siegfried and Roy, and David Copperfield. Mr. Steinmeier has also developed attractions and live shows for the Walt Disney Company, Universal Studios, and DreamWorks, has twice received fellowships from the Academy of Magical Arts. So that's pretty awesome. That's quite a resume, Jim. That's quite a resume. So how did you? You're welcome. And how how did you come from being, uh, it, it with such a, a a vast background in magic? How did that kind of translate into you writing this story about Dracula? Well, I've done a, a few different stories on on subjects that sort of touch on interests of mine, and and of course Dracula, you know, needless to say, is is such a cultural icon and such a cultural touchstone for for so many people. And I think I was a fan of the story for a long time, but then I came to realize in um, reading about Stoker and, and researching him that that he really was a, a creature of the theater and that his background was the theater and that was his focus. And the Dracula was a story that came out of that world of, of the 19th century theater, which is, a, which is an area that always interested me. So I knew some of the people that he... Knew. So I, I say I knew through literature and through their reputations. And I realized kind of what a rich uh, area this was that he was picking from. And it was a surprise to me mm-hmm. as I started to research the different theories about the characters that influenced him. And that they were people who are also known to us today and have been famous to us, his famous friends, who certainly had an influence on this book. I mean, early on in the book, I, I sort of ask, you know, is it reasonable to assume that these amazing personalities had an influence on the character of Dracula. And when you look at that question, you have to sort of turn it around and say, is it possible that they didn't have an influence? Because you can see elements of this story woven through Stoker's associates and Stoker's problems and Stoker's business affairs and Stoker's personal affairs. And I think one of the ingenious aspects of Dracula is that he wove these elements and these characteristics together into this incredible, larger-than-life mythical book. So it, it was a great story to tell, and um, um, through my agent and then my, my publisher at, uh, at Tartar, they were fascinated by this aspect of it, that this, this story really is based on real people who, who um, Stoker knew and worked with on a regular basis. That's quite fascinating, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, I am a little bit ashamed because I have a degree in theater, and in fact, I even taught theater for several years, and this is the first time I've ever heard 
of Bram Stoker having any history in theater. And I feel like I should have known. I mean, it's like I should have known this. <laughs> well, it's really it's very interesting because he, you know, I was I was just a, a few months ago at the Lyceum again in um, in London, which was the theater he worked at. Right. And um, they now have um, on the back of the theater they have this kind of glorious frieze where they have the names Irving. Terry and Stoker, the three oh, wow. names together of the of the great actor, his leading lady, and then Bram Stoker, and it's wonderful that they're all honored that way. But it's also slightly amusing because in their day, of course, Stoker was was nowhere near had nowhere near the renown of Irving and Terry. They were the stars, and Stoker was really a a, a fellow who did the dirty work behind the scenes, not not literally lifting scenery and moving scenery. Right. But he handled the office affairs, he handled the tours, right. he handled the schedules. Right. He was the guy who who did budgets and schedules and, and sort of made that theater work. And while he was known to the society, uh, London society, as, as the man behind Henry Irving, he was not a renowned man in the theater. He was the guy kind of behind the scenes who was, who was making it happen. So I, it, it isn't a surprise. I mean, for a long time, I think he wasn't really associated uh, after his death, it was forgotten that he was associated with the theater. That's amazing. Now he was, because in the with the Lyceum Theater, he was that like you said, he was the, you know, first it would be kind of was the acting manager, then he became the business manager, right. which you know explains what what you were saying. And he held that post for a long time, for uh, according to the information I have, for all, all, over twenty plus years. He and actually then, he met Irving before Irving bought that theater. Interesting. And he, he went with Irving to London when the Lyceum was set up, and then he was with Irving. He was actually with Irving when Irving died. So he he really did all of the glory days of Henry Irving's career, and the people who knew them um, considered that Bram Stoker was kind of the secret, the magic behind Henry Irving. Uh, not necessarily that he was a huge creative force, but that he was he was the guy that got everything done so that Henry Irving could be the creative force. And could work on those plays in 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 the ways that he did. So so who is this Henry Irving that we're hearing so much about? I mean, who is this mystery man that we're that we're now just hearing about? Well, Henry Irving was, at the time, uh, Great Britain's leading actor. Uh, he was a he was a star of the stage. He was the first actor that was knighted by royalty, um, which was quite a story in itself. And wow. He, um, um, he was renowned as uh, as an acting um, uh, one of the great actor managers, meaning he was a he was a um, man who not only acted in plays but he managed his own theater, and then then decided on what his shows would be. He booked the companies. He was completely responsible for all the creatives that creative aspects of the production, and so he was something of a, a theatrical genius. He was a curious figure. He was he had a lot of kind of strange mannerisms. He was um, kind of tall and thin. Um, he walked with a little bit of a uh, with a little bit of a limp, uh, slightly bent over. He had strange affectations of speech. He was drawn to mysterious, strange, supernatural stories. He became famous for a story called The Bells, which was about hypnosis and about a, a man who imagined, who had recollections of a murder that he committed and was finally forced to confess. Hmm. And so. Um, this whole nature of him being drawn to supernatural stories and having this kind of quirky personality and, and playing these bigger than life characters on stage naturally um, 
ties into Dracula. And um, there's a strong suspicion that in many ways, uh, Bram Stoker wrote the role for Henry Irving. Mm. Wrote it with the intention that Henry Irving would turn the novel into a play. And it would have been genius. <laughs> I, I was going to say, yeah. Henry Irving would have been a brilliant, brilliant Dracula. I can see that, yeah. Now, do you know if Henry Irving ever did uh, Faust? Because I, but because at that point in time, that was a very, very popular play. Well, Henry Irving did do Faust, and, and that was certainly a, a play that heavily influenced Irving, and uh, in, influenced Irving and also Stoker. Right. Because Stoker so. worked on it, and there was a tremendous amount, of course, of supernatural connotations in Faust. We certainly see images right from the play that got translated into the into the later novel of Dracula. Right. When he played in Faust, though, Henry Irving played Mephistopheles. He played right. the devil. And he became, he really standardized, this was in the 1880s, late 1880s, he standardized our view of the devil, of Mephistopheles, dressed completely in red, um, with the uh, with a feather in his cap. That whole image of the kind of jaunty, um, dangerous devil was taken right from Henry Irving's role in Mephistopheles. Right, the whole Nicholas Scratch character. That's, the... that's right, yeah, right. exactly. And so he was incredibly influential. It's interesting to note that Henry Irving, um, later in his career when Dracula was written, I think his judgment, his judgment about his own roles suffered slightly. And he, he, I think it's fair to say he made two big mistakes at the end of his career. The first was dismissing Dracula. He, he didn't take it seriously. He didn't treat the book seriously. And he certainly didn't listen to any um, appeals that Stoker made for him to turn it into a play. So unfortunately, Dracula sat on Henry Irving's desk and was not made into a play. And Henry Irving missed probably the greatest role of his career. Oh, my. And shortly after that, he turned down another role from um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who thought that uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories would make a very good play. Oh, uh. And asked Henry Irving, who, if you look at pictures of him, you say that man looks exactly like Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. Um, he offered him the role of Sherlock Holmes, and Henry Irving dismissed it and thought it was trivial. And it went to an American actor named uh, William Gillette, and it was the only, virtually right. the only role that William Gillette ever played after that. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Wow, that's unbelievable. That's amazing. So I, Irving was a genius, but he he made at least two big mistakes. <laughs> well, who doesn't, right? But right, man, exactly. what a, I, I mean, I, I don't know who said it, but someone once said, if you're going to fail, at least try to fail spectacularly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's kind of, that was kind of true. And that was also true through his career. He had enormous, huge successes on stage, amazing roles, spectacular productions. And then there were some, and, and Stoker writing about his boss later was, was, fairly honest about it, you know, just didn't work. You know, big, big crashing failures on stage that they had that had to be withdrawn. Um, but he was he was known for all those bigger than life characters. And that's that's, I think, why Dracula would have been a perfect role for him. So, I mean, it sounds like it's a pretty big. I, well, I don't know if I want to say a slam dunk uh, kind of answer of who was Dracula. OK, it's definitely was, you know, at least Henry Irving or at least the the idea that Henry Irving would have been for Dracula but you know what about this whole popular myth about Vlad the Impaler and uh, you know all that the the actual historical and I say that in a very very uh, 
you know, exaggerated sense, tense, mind you, the, uh, you know, that whole historical um, right. connection. What about that? Well, it, it's a complicated story. It's a really interesting story, and it's a, it's a really fascinating kind of red herring. But we know now that it was a red herring, and it, 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 there's not much truth to that. Um, Stoker got the name Dracula from a um, Romanian count. Vlad Dracul, uh, which was a nickname. Dracul meant of the devil or of the dragon. And right. Of the dragon, of the dragon didn't mean he was a bad man, although, although he actually was. But that was a kind of honorary degree, meaning of the dragon that was given to him. And um, um, Stoker clearly found the name in in books of history about Transylvania and that area, which he was researching. Um, and so the name was was a fantastic one. I mean, it, previously in his in the notes to the novel, the character was called Vampire, uh, almost like the word vampire with a W, right. which right. of course wouldn't wouldn't have really had the same feel to it. No, so Dracula was a brilliant name, and uh, some authors in the seventies, uh, named McNally and Fortescue, wrote a wonderful book called In Search of Dracula where they, they realized that this name was based on the name of a real Romanian count, and they researched him, and they called attention to the fact that this man was accused of various tortures, and this was a fascinating connection, and that clearly Stoker knew all about this, and had secretly woven all of this into the novel Dracula. And then a few years later, as these authors were researching their next book, they came across a library in Philadelphia, the Rosenbach Library, where I also researched, mm-hmm. and... Um, they were researching the, the original Count Dracula, and the Rosenbach librarian said, oh, you might not be aware, we have the original manuscript and the notes from, um, uh, actually not the manuscript, but the notes that Stoker used to compose his book. And when they read them, as I did as well, uh, Stoker kept meticulous notes, and they realized that Stoker knew almost nothing about this legendary Count. They could see the books that he had read. They could see all of the sources that he had consulted. Mm-hmm. And he really knew nothing more than his name. He took the name Dracula and, and kind of got lucky by picking the name of someone who was so interesting and so so nefarious. But in fact, Stoker didn't base any of this on the count. And we can see this now because, again, he kept meticulous notes of all the books that he read and all of the sources that he used. And there isn't anything in the in the novel that actually ties to the real count. So unfortunately, these authors then had to write that they they had, had overstated this and that, that the actual Bram Stoker novel was based almost nothing at all on this count except for his name. Um, so although that's a great story, unfortunately, that's a story that, that got shot down. And so you mean to say that, and this is really, I mean, I obviously, of course, I already know this, but this is kind of for our listening audience out there that's already, I'm sure, shocked to hear this. So all of these great movies that we're used to, the Bela Lugosi movie, the movie with Gary Oldman, the movie with Christopher uh, Lee, all of these movies of Dracula were not actually pretty that very that true to the actual book that Bram Stoker wrote. Is that correct to well, say that? Um, well, it's, it's two points. I mean, first, first Stoker used the influence of the, of the real Romanian count very little. Uh, just the name, but mm-hmm. but that's an interesting point that you just raised, which is which is how much our image of Dracula is based on Stoker's fictional count. 
And that's another surprise, which is that um, you know there's there's very little of of Soker's original Dracula that's worked its way into popular culture. Um, now, that might be one of the that might be one of the really clever things about this novel. Um, the character of Dracula appears on I don't know something like sixty some pages of the novel of a, of a novel of over four hundred pages. Um, there's very little of Dracula in Dracula. Hmm. And I think that's a surprise to people who read the book today. Yep. Um, the book is, is is written as a series of letters and diary right. entries. Right, it's like a journal almost. Jur- journal entries, etc. And so it's a, it ends up being a lot of people talking about, uh, writing about things, thinking about things, discussing things. And Dracula, of course, writes none of that. He, he actually, there's a, there's a small note from him. Uh, that's transcribed in the book, but he actually there's nothing, of course, in his in his words except a few recollections of a couple speeches that he gives. Mm-hmm. So there's very little Dracula in the book, and and if you really go by the description of him, he he doesn't look anything like what we think of Dracula today. He kind of has long white hair, sharp teeth, thinning hair on top, um, an, an old man with with very pale skin, and um, um, in many ways, uh, it's been pointed out, the person that Stoker knew who matches Dracula closest was the American poet Walt Whitman, who was uh-huh. a, um, Stoker admired as a writer and then later met when he came to America. And it's interesting because that kind of bigger-than-life, white-haired kind of wizard image right. that Whitman had is also describes Dracula in the kind of kind of triumphant moments of the book. Um so what's fascinating about the character, and I think what has really led to its success, again, was this intentional or was this accidental? It's hard to say, is that every generation has to reinvent Dracula again because he's not very well described in the book and the descriptions are not very clear. And so what happens is, is that he gets reinvented in that generation's fantasy. So in the 1920s, um, on Broadway first, you have a Dracula appear on Broadway who looks an awful lot like, you know, Rudolph Valentino, a kind of Hungarian Rudolph Valentino hmm. um, who was, who had just died, incidentally. Valentino had just died at the height of his career. It's a kind of zombified Valentino who, who Lugosi is playing, someone with patent leather hair, very elegant in an even, in, uh, evening cloak and tuxedo. But a man from far away who comes to, you know, steal our women away. And um, and it was sort of the perfect zombie. It was the perfect fiend for the 1920s. You know, it was it was that sort of sophisticated image, but also a man from a distant place who, who, who promises danger. And then again, you know, every generation gets to reinvent him again in the new form. And I, I suppose it isn't a surprise that, you know, the Twilight series, now vampires are teenagers. <laughs> Oh God, I can't. Oh, you know, I wish you hadn't mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's sort of the perfect form. It's 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 that sort of it's that sort of outsider image trying to fit in, which is which has always been an element of the Dracula story and has been replayed time and time again. You know, I gotta tell you, I <laughs> I'm a bit of a um, I'm a pretty good big rather traditionalist when it comes to horror movies and okay. you know the um, that kind of thing. And when I saw Twilight, 
oh my god, I almost fainted. <laughs> and and I will say this, I will say this because I know many of our listeners are fans. I strain to say that word of that of that series, and um, I know that th- there are qualities of the books that are okay to read and the the part about him being like you said an outsider and kind of mysterious but also beautiful and the same that that in itself is very uh similar to the original like you just said the original idea of dracula so that even though it it's painful for those of people that actually really abhor that series they i think need to kind of you know we need to kind of calm down and realize hey guess what then we probably would not have been very happy with the way that dracula was really portrayed in the actual original book because he really was not this decrepit corpse-like figure you know he was actually a very beautiful man he was a very handsome man and his, you know, well, we're talking about his triumphant days now. We're, but he, but he was, yeah, he was an aristocrat. He was a Romanian aristocrat. Right. Um, there was something, there was something definitely creepy about him, and 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 Jonathan Arger remarks on that right. when he meets him. But he's, um, yeah, he's a, uh, you know, there's there there are elements of him that definitely, uh, you know, are are taken from. Well, you know, it's interesting that in many ways there's a tradition literature of the Byronic hero, and the Byronic hero is a is a construction. It's a it's a hero. It's a person who's out of time and out of right. place. Right. I'm know, familiar who, with this. Yeah. Yeah. Who's not quite a hero? Who's almost a villain? But you know, it, 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 there's a kind of tragedy to it because that person would have fit in somewhere else, and in many ways, Dracula is the kind of perfect Byronic hero. You can see that he. He is, he is. What's strange about the novel is that he's doing just fine in Transylvania. You know, somehow he's able to presumably murder people quite regularly, and it doesn't stir people up in Transylvania. You know, he, right. he, whatever his system is, he's got it down in Transylvania. But he actually has a short little speech where he says he longs to be in a modern city. He longs to be in a metropolis. He wants to be in the middle of of life. And it's only because he aspires to come to London, it's only because he aspires to be a modern person that he has to be chased back to his original lair, you know, that, that, that the world can't deal with him. And right. so in many ways, there's a, there's a kind of tragic aspect of this character. And I think that's always been um, what makes him interesting. And, you know, I, I, I completely understand your attitude about Twilight, but I would say <laughs> that um, uh, Bram Stoker, you know, is completely responsible for not taking anything away from the author but Bram Stoker is really responsible for establishing these rules of a vampire that all comes from Dracula and about kind of establishing the form and how these stories are told right and one of the things to his credit is that he he's he's written a story that can be rewoven and retold and uh you know rejiggered in various forms to always find a new audience and always you know, be given twists and turns so that it's it's durable. And it, but it's but it's still the same character. Yes. Uh, well, certainly, you know, the character is strong enough that you can move it around and you can change it, and it all still works. Yeah. And that's what I agree. Works. I agree with that. I mean, it, regardless of how people think of the the new variations of it, of the theme rather, 
uh still you know what it's it's an it's really he is the immortal one you know he is the undead you know <laughs> and you know you were talking about the byronic hero and and you know like nowadays we we would refer to it as the anti-hero really and mm-hmm. well like batman for example batman right. is definitely a, a dracula type i mean come on how obvious can that be right and you know we want to go back in time even further one of the first, if not the the first Byronic hero of all, Oedipus Rex himself, you know, yeah, who was... Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, someone who <clears throat> was royalty and was brought down. Um, yeah, it, it, all of those things, there's a... I think that what's fascinating about Dracula is that sort of that sort of grandeur and that, that sense that he has to be put in his place. You know, he... There's something tragic about him that, that the world cannot deal with, and and because he's in the wrong place, because he's in the wrong time, he has to be put in his place. Right, um, and that's that's the beauty of that's really the immortality of it is, is the way that it can just be stretched and 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 made into so many different forms. Now, let's let's um let let's fast forward a tiny bit. I think to the um because there was a po- a period in time where the original manuscript of Dracula was lost. Yes. And in fact, they didn't even think that it would ever be found. But apparently, it was in the early 1980s. It was it was discovered in a barn in a northwestern Pennsylvania of all places. And now they said on the title page there was something written called the Undead, mm-hmm. and they said the author's name was Bram Stoker. Now, do you know anything about this? Do you know if this is true? Was this really the real manuscript or do you know anything about that? Well, I, I can't, um, let's see, I can't do this off the top of my head, but, but I, I think what you're saying is, is all completely right. I don't remember the notion of the undead, although I do know he, I think that's right. He played with several titles, um, not very interesting ones, to be honest with you. And so there were different titles ascribed to this book as it was in the mm-hmm. manuscript form. The, the manuscript, the, the, the typescript of Dracula surfaced, you're right, right around that time. And I think that's right. I think it surfaced in this country. It was in a private library. It was it was not treated with a great deal of respect. It was kind of one of these things that was in a box oh. with someone's papers. Um, and you have to understand that the reason that seems so strange to us today is that Dracula was not really a very highly regarded book. Um, at the time it came out, it was a certainly... Stoker's most successful book, his best-reviewed book. But at the time Stoker died, I don't think he had any reason to believe that it was that it would be an extraordinary piece of literature or or an inspiring piece of literature. It was merely his most successful book. And um, at the time his papers were sold, at, which was his death, there wasn't any special value ascribed to um uh, to Dracula. Uh, I, I, I'll give you an example. You know, I talked about Henry Irving's mistakes uh, and the roles he didn't play. Um, the London Times, at the time of Bram Stoker's death, um, they have a great quote in, in the obituary about Stoker, where they say, "Clearly, clearly, you know, he wrote several books, but he will clearly be remembered for his biography of Henry Irving." Interesting. Um, needless to say, that's not what we remember him for. <laughs> <And> <laughs> no, I was going to say, I don't think so. <laughs> pressed, you would be hard-pressed to find a copy of that 
biography of Henry Irving um, because it was only published once. Uh, it it might have been republished now since, but it's not like that book has ever uh, been jumping off the shelves. But right. but the Times of London got, got it got it wrong too in 1912 when he died. They just didn't understand the staying power of this character. So what I'm saying was when that manuscript was sold uh, with Stoker's papers, I don't think it was treated with any special respect. It was merely another manuscript of a novel. And it ended up on a shelf. If I, if this story is right, it ended up on a shelf with a collector's papers and just was not cataloged or specially taken care of because it was, it was coming in with a bunch of other materials. So it was a surprise when it was discovered, um, years later and and rediscovered years later that's amazing i mean and and really this whole uh, this whole idea I mean, which i i really i mean i think that what you've proposed i don't see how it can be anything else i mean really i i think that really is who he you know based him on well and, i mean i mentioned other characters that were really influential in his life like walt whitman like um, oscar wilde um, and certainly, I mean, cause Stoker was a very good friend of Oscar Wilde and was right in the middle of that theater community when Wilde faced his trial and, um, and the early accusations. And Wilde was another quote unquote outsider who had, who, uh, Stoker knew as a boy and who came from Ireland, like, like Bram Stoker and who kind of stormed London society and then became someone who was unclean, you know, became someone who, who had to be put in his place by the rest of society um, because he was a homosexual and 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 he caused a scandal because of it. And so you can yeah. see elements of all these stories being dragged through the Dracula novel, and I think that they really had an influence. And then the one that Stoker admitted to, and Stoker didn't say much about the inspirations of the book. He said very, very little ever in press. But in the introduction to one of the editions, the, actually the Icelandic edition of the book, he admitted that uh, he, he had some kind of slight fiction that, that pretending that the book was real, that, of course, it was tied to the recent crimes in the West End, um, uh, on the East End of London, which would have been the Jack the Ripper crime. I was just going to say, yeah, the Jack the Ripper, yeah. And so you can see that that whole sort of crime wave, um, you know, that sort of scandal is also – wrapped up in this book because that that was happening right at the time that would have been happening right several years before he started thinking about this book and composing this book um and all those things were happening right around the same time so certainly jack the ripper formed an influence and there's a very interesting story and i think a rather chilling story that stoker might have had dinner with the leading suspect in the jack the ripper case get out of here now there's so much you know, crazy Jack the Ripper stuff that's been said and speculated about. But I do think what's interesting about this is that Stoker, there's a very good chance that Stoker knew that he, that he had met this person. No way. And he knew, no, no, absolutely. And he knew that he was a suspect. All of that is in the press, all of that. In other words, whether there's any truth to the fact that this man was Jack the Ripper, um, I think it's impossible to say now. It was a man named Francis Tumblety who was from America and then was was arrested and jumped bail and got back on a ship and went back to America. Mm. But there's there's a suspicion. They had mutual friends. They had a number of mutual friends. And there really does seem to be the indication that they might have had dinner at the Lyceum Theater. 
And I think what is significant about that is, you know, we can speculate from now and forever whether Francis Tumulty was Jack the Ripper or whether any one of other 10 prominent suspects was Jack the Ripper. Right. But the press reported on it. The press definitely reported on the suspicions of him. And I think that that Bram Stoker, um, at the time he was writing Dracula, probably knew that he had known or had connections, strong connections, to one of the leading suspects in this case. And at the time, of course, that Stoker was living, that case was never settled. So he must have asked himself, he must have seriously asked himself, did I know Jack the Ripper? I mean, that's there was wow. no answer for it at the time. You're, you're blowing my mind here. <laughs> I mean, that's unreal. That's unbelievable. Wow. It's interesting because if you look at Dracula, if you read the novel Dracula, mm-hmm. and I'll just I'll just tell you this because it, it does send a chill down your spine. Dracula is, is dedicated, it says, to Hamibeg. To Hamibeg. Hamibeg is a slang name um, for a novelist, a very good friend of of um, Stoker's named Hall Kane, who was a popular Victorian novelist. And Hall Kane was a was a good friend early in his life of Francis Tumulty. Oh my God! And we think that the connection between Hall Kane and Bram Stoker is how is how um, Francis Tumulty met Bram Stoker. So it's right there on the first page of Dracula to Hamlet, wow. and that was the man who would have known both of them. Right. Wow. That's. I'm. I'm. I'm speechless. This is amazing. And and you know I will say this. I mean, this the period of time that we're talking about here, which is really close to the turn of the century, and really most of the 19th century, was a very big time for horror. What would be called horror fiction or romanticized gothic stories, melodrama, that kind of thing. I mean, my gosh, you had, you know, Frankenstein or, you know, the, um, what would, something about Prometheus. What, would they, what did they used to call yeah, it? The modern Prometheus. Was the modern Prometheus. Frankenstein. And, right, and, you know, you had uh, this and you had a million other there were, know, books. There were, actually, there were actually good vampire stories before Dracula. Uh, I mean, certainly Stoker would have known the vampire stories were were successful. There was a there was a a, a series of Penny Dreadfuls, uh, right? Of Varney, right. Varney the Vampire, and then there was a very good short story by a man named Sheridan Le Fanon, who Stoker probably knew in uh, from Dublin. Certainly, he, he was at one time his boss, uh, if if that makes sense. Uh, Le Fanon was a publisher when Stoker was writing, and Le Fanon wrote a wrote a book called Carmilla about a um, a female vampire, which was which was quite influential and clearly st- influenced Stoker very strongly. Now that's interesting. So yeah, this, this was yeah. Dracula was part of a series of of really influential horror books and I think one of the surprises to us it was kind of one of the last of them. It was written quite late. Um it was written in 1897 at the very very end of the Victorian age. And right. what's interesting about the book again to modern readers is that it feels very old-fashioned, the book. It, it sort of slightly deceives us today because it feels more old-fashioned than it was. It was written in 1897, and because it's all letters and, and diary entries, it feels quite creaky and old-fashioned. But there, right in the book, are amazing things, like um, uh, a number of the uh, diary transcriptions are actually done with a, um, a phonograph. 
In other words, it says taken by a phonograph and then transcribed. That's interesting. Um, Jonathan Harker uh, takes Kodak pictures of property to send back to to show to Dracula. And that would have just had been invented by then. I mean, or at least exactly just... no. And, it, and that all that technology was brand new. Uh, Mina Harker, when she tries to put all of the notes together to try and solve the crime and try and figure out the mystery of Dracula, she goes and takes all of it and and puts it in a typewriter and types. Type, transcribes and types all of the notes so that they're so that they're organized because Mina Harper had just learned Harker had just learned how to type and so uh, Stoker is very conscious about making this a, a modern novel he puts a lot of bits of modern technology in it so that we're aware that Dracula has stumbled into the modern world wow oh wow that's amazing that's that you know, I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, I um, I I thought I knew about a lot about this time period. I thought I knew a lot about this particular character, but in reading your book and hearing what you have to say about it, there's just so much. I mean, we're just scratching the surface, really. And for those of you, I mean, I know we're running out of time, but for those of you who really want to learn more, because we we haven't even touched about into the whole magician uh, aspect of the story. And and really, um, the whole the whole thing about because uh, I think in the book you go more into the Lyceum Theater and then more yeah. into Henry. I mean, you really get into Henry Irving quite a bit. And uh, we didn't even really I mean, we talked about him, but there's a lot more to him than I think. Uh, I think that is a lot very interesting. And but if for those of you who really want to know even more about this, uh, I really highly recommend that you purchase this book. Uh, who was Dracula? Uh, Bram Stoker's Trail of Blood by Jim Steinmeier, which you can uh, purchase at Amazon.com or really any major bookstore. You can order it. Um, Jim, do you have a, a website of your own that, that they can order from or learn more about you specifically or your other uh, titles? Or I do have a website of other titles, actually, um, because Dracula was published by Penguin. It's, it's sold through Amazon. But I have uh, I have a website jimsteinmeyer.com which is about uh, my magic titles and, and work about magicians. I would uh, love. And I have some of my books up there as well. That's great. I would the next time we get you on the show, I would love to talk to you about the the, the whole your stage magic background because it's something that I am deeply deeply uh, not only a big fan of, but I'm also very interested in. I'm trying to learn magic myself. I'm only. Oh, that's great. No, I, I you know it's a it's a very old art. Oh, absolutely. It's going away, but uh, I but know it it's a so shame. It's always it's always highly regarded uh, by certain by certain audiences, so it's always fun to talk about. It is, and really, if you think about it, it was one of the first uh, big uh, performance uh, arts that there were. In fact, it was so amazing when it first happened when they first did it. Not to not to change the subject of the of the conversation, but just very quickly. That when it first when when illusionists and magicians first started doing their work, people thought it was so real that some of them were even arrested, and some some were actually executed. There were there were actual magicians, stage magicians. I shouldn't. I'm not laughing at them. I'm saying how amazing it is. That's how good they were. That the local authorities of these countries that these magicians performed in killed them because they thought they really made this person disappear for real. And you know, maybe killed them or something like that. Which well, there's I mean, always been there's always been a way that all those things kind of got twisted up, kind of right. in, back in history. And some of that might have been slightly overstated. But th- th- there's a really famous book, The Discovery of Witchcraft, which ties all those things together. 
because the author wanted to make a point about real witchcraft and did it by making points about imitation witchcraft or, or, or magic. And it's a really fascinating it's a really fascinating story about how those things got combined. Oh, that's interesting. I should, I might look into that. That's very interesting. So we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back on the air to talk about all this, um, the stage magic and your, your background with it. That'd be very interesting. So that's great. Emmy. I enjoyed it. No, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. Uh, Jim, it was, it was an absolute honor and, uh, to, to speak with you. And, um, we, we look forward to hearing from you again. Thanks. Thank you very much. That was our uh, interview with uh, Jim Steinmeier, author of Who Was Dracula? Bram Stoker's Trail of Blood. Once again, you can get that at any major bookstore or on Amazon.com. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a short break. When we get back, um, if I have time, I'll get into a couple um, articles of note. But um, just hang in there. You're listening to The Graveyard Shift, blogtalkradio.com slash The Graveyard Shift. We'll be right back. Put your warm speed on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show on theblogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift. You're listening to Tanzu Lensent, written by Holden Strianez and Ricky Mosher of East Coast Raid. <clears throat> I actually said um, Holden's last name correctly last time, so I apologize for that. So his name, his name is actually Holden Strianez and Ricky Mosher, East Coast Raid. And um, while we're listening to this awesome piece of music, I'll go ahead and tell you guys a few little tidbits of trivia. Um, as far as the articles... Um, I actually <laughs> uh, did most of them already. Uh, you can go to um, our Twitter feed. You should be able to hear some of our old articles that I recommended. There's a little bit of uh, some of our fans actually wanted us to talk about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy trivia. So here's the fans out there that want to hear this. Now, with Dave Batista, who as everyone knows, played Dave Destroyer. When he found out that Scott when um, Dave Batista found out that he got the role of Drax the Destroyer, he actually broke down in tears. Overjoyed at getting a Marvel comic book role, he immediately signed up for extra acting classes in order to prepare for the role. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, <laughs> I think that worked, wouldn't you say? Vin Diesel recorded all of his I Am Groot lines, you know, I Am Groot, over 1,000 times in several different languages including Russian, Mandarin, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and French, so that they could use his real voice in the film around the world. And he did this while wearing stilts, so he could get a sense of how high off the ground and how large, well, not off the ground, but how large Groot was. How about that? Ladies and gentlemen, we're actually running out of time. I wish I could say more, but I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Stay tuned, guys. Um, I'm still, we are still going to air the interview between myself and Tracy Roberts, hopefully next week. So um, just hang in there and, you know, have our Facebook group page on your favorites. And also have the blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard ship on your favorites list. 
we will be updating it very soon when we are ready to air the interview with myself and Tracy Roberts of Positively Autistic Fame. That one is promises to be pretty fascinating for those of you who have been hearing it. In the, the previous interview, we were talking about her adoption story, which is amazing. If you have not heard it yet, do so. Go to our um, our page on Block Talk Radio. Look for the episode. It's me interviewing Tracy Roberts, and she talks about the true story of her, uh, ad, uh, you know, her adoptive uh, parents or adoptive family, and how she was looking for her birth family. And it's really an amazing story, a true story. And still going through it today. And she's, there's a lot of high points, a lot of low points, but she's an amazing woman. She's very strong-willed. And, and, you know, we are always praying for her health and safety and her well-being. And, you know, if you can kind of join us in that, that would be wonderful. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is it for tonight. And I guess we'll see you guys next week here on the Graveyard Shift. And this is Emmy. And I want to thank you guys very much. I'm going to end the show with um, another good friend of mine. Uh, I think I ended it with this last time, if I'm not mistaken. I want to make sure that... Um, let me see. I believe... No, I think I already did that one, actually. Um, I think I'm going to end it with um, my good friend Chupacabra's, the band, uh, their, their uh, music called Out of Time. So here it is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift, and I'm punching out. See you in a week.